Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. They now have CPU-optimized droplets with dedicated hyper-threads from best-in-class Intel CPUs for all your machine learning and batch processing needs. You can easily spin up their one-click machine learning and AI application image. This gives you immediate access to Python 3, R, Jupyter Notebook, TensorFlow, Scikit, and PyTorch. Use our special link to get a $100 credit for DigitalOcean and try it today for free at the do.co slash changelog. Once again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to Practical AI, a weekly podcast about making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. This is where conversations around AI, machine learning, and data science happen. Join the community and Slack with us around various topics of the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Practical AI FM. And now onto the show. All right, I'm really excited to be here at O'Reilly AI with some of the uh, Intel innovators in AI and ML. Really excited to, to ask these, these guys some questions today and, and hear from them. But before we do that, let's kind of go around and introduce who's in the room. So I'll start, start with you, Vinay. Thank you, Daniel. I'm a huge fan of Practically AI, your podcast. I've listened to every one of your episodes. My name is Vinay Rao. I'm the CEO of RocketML. Uh, we make a distributed machine learning platform to help data scientists do experimentation much faster. Awesome, and maybe everyone could share uh, something that they're excited about in the world of AI too. What about what about you, Vinay? I think the market uh, opportunity for AI, whether it's doing machine learning or putting out products, AI products is very, very large. Everybody's underestimating the market size. Uh, my own prediction is that, uh, I'm gonna go on a limb here, it's going to be a trillion dollar market size. Awesome. So let's go on there, Peter. So uh, thanks for having me, Daniel. My name is Peter Mon. I'm working on a project called Clean Water AI. It uses a computer vision, the artificial intelligence to detect the, uh, the bacteria and the harmful particles in the water. Awesome. Uh, That's really exciting. So what I'm really excited about AI is that what it can do and how it can apply into the current world right now, from self-driving down to pretty much you know repetitive uh, healthcare um, tasks. And I think in you know in in the very near future we're we're pretty much going to have using it to uh, reduce all the costs on the healthcare that a lot of doctors pretty much they're just for simple screening at least in the United States that that's going to be very helpful. Yeah, yeah, AI is going to make a, a large difference for good as well as all the you know malicious things that we see kind of advertised in industry. Yeah, it's great to get that perspective. <laughs> what about you, Dave? Hey, thanks for having me. So I'm Dave. Uh, this is actually my first time on uh, Practical AI, so it's very exciting to be here. So I'm a uh, research assistant or research affiliate. Uh, it's a new position I just got at the University of Florida. Oh, I recently just finished my PhD. Yeah. So thank you. So on this side, I'm also looking at other projects. I'm one of the Intel innovators. We had a, a demo at Intel booth today. 
today on uh, applied AI in, in retail. What am I ex excited about? I'm going to say FPGAs. So FPGAs are essentially like GPUs for acceleration. And I do know Vinay's heavily into GPUs, right, with Rocket ML. I'm more into FPGAs for inferencing. So I do see a very large market for inferencing. My personal thing three years ago was when scientists were really, like, really going hard to develop ML models. And we're in the era right now, we're trying to take those ML models and put them into production. So there's a much larger market space in that area, for sure. Awesome, yeah. Ali? Yeah, uh, this is Ali with Netrolix. It's my first time uh, with uh, Practical AI. Netrolix, uh, we're excited to use AI in the network. Network field, we control the traffic engineering of our core, utilizing deep learning. And I agree, GPU and both, because we're pushing FPGA also to the edge of the network. We're, we're working on pushing the AI to the edge of the network. So thanks for having me, Dan. I'm, I'm also with Netrolix. I'm, I asked Ali to join because he's much smarter than I am. And the more I learn about this, the more I realize I don't know. And, and that being said, I like what we're doing because we're, we're, we're kind of the underlying technology to support all of the AI initiatives, which is the network and optimizing the network and creating a neural behavior and self-correcting behavior in the network, which is 90% internet and even more so as we grow into IoT and other things like that. What excites me about AI is actually pretty simple, the adoption of it, how quickly people are gonna start trusting it and actually not being scared of a Skynet or something ridiculous, mm -hmm. but actually putting faith in it like, like we do here group of us so thanks awesome Dan. yeah and Ali and Wes just to kind of clarify because we do talk about networks a lot but you guys are talking about uh, networks in the sense of the internet and interconnected uh, infrastructure right. right not necessarily uh, neural networks although you're using neural networks that's on right. the network right that's right yeah. so so it's funny I, I say kind of tongue-in-cheek to people that we've harnessed the internet right but what that really means is that we're leveraging about 20,000 sensors plus a footprint of about 68 data centers globally only 22 of which are in North America, and essentially we just collect data, performance data, latency, jitter, packet loss, throughput, availability, and hundreds of other metrics that we as humans will not even think to account for that impact network performance over the internet. We take that same intelligence and apply that into security as well. So our security posture is equally as strong powered by AI as well, all over the internet as an OTT software. So a little, cool. little bit disruptive to the service provider or equipment space, but it's fun. Yeah, that's awesome. So I have something maybe a little bit special for you guys today. Normally we just kind of do a, a standard interview, but since this is a, a panel and you guys are all experts in the field, I thought it would be fun to just pull some of the recent questions from Cora uh, about uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Get your guys' perspective to, to hear from some of the experts about how they would answer some of these questions that, that people are really asking as they're diving into the field. So does that sound okay for you guys? Yeah for the challenge? Great. Yeah. Awesome. So the first of these questions is, what do I do next when I've achieved a machine learning program at 97% accuracy and good fit? And I think really, uh, you, guys, you guys are laughing a little bit. Stop. Right. It, it, Stop. So yeah. This was the point that I was alluding to, right? So few years ago, researchers were, you know, working so hard to develop models that would meet 97%, 98%. But what's next after that, yeah. right? And so we're in the era right now, we're trying to productionize machine learning models. And it's very exciting to see startups that are coming up almost every day with a workflow to, t to let you take machine learning models, put it into production in a more scalable fashion. So I really think that's the next phase of ML and AI. It's how do you put it into production at the edge, right? Or some IoT device. Yeah, so what what's 
what's different, uh, maybe to follow up on that, what's different about production or utilizing a model after you've kind of trained it to get a particular evaluation metric that you might, might be after? I think about your original question a little bit differently. 97% might be at particular level of problem statement, but as humans, we know how to split the problem into minute pieces. So something underneath that may not be 97%. As we collect more data, as companies collect more data, the new problems will start to emerge. Again, accuracy within that would be like 70%. So you'd have to increase it. For example, if you take translation as a problem, you know, 96% accuracy, whatever, but maybe some languages it's not. Uh, so the problem will, uh, will shift as the AI practitioners will be chasing uh, unsolved problems <laughs> all the time. So I, I agree. I, I think we just need to get out of the way. I yeah. think we, we learned so much as soon as we got out of the way and let that machine learning and those algorithms do what they do and what exactly. we designed them to do. Yeah. And we keep getting away and we put a number like 97%. Who am I to define that? I, in my own mind, I can't comprehend or, or factualize what that 90% looks like or 97%, right? And you said other languages. We can't assume that it will be that. It has if you get to a certain level, like we say, what, 85%, we get to 85%, we're super excited, and then the rest we kind of manage, that 15%, that variable, right? But you have to always view it as a variable, not a static, I reach 97, you know? Just to add on that, for example, self-driving car, if you take self-driving car, the accuracy of uh, uh, whatever the little functionality within self-driving car could be 90 plus in daytime, for example, but in nighttime it may not be. So there will always be challenges uh, in the area. Yeah, I think something I always tell people as well is to think about these yeah. accuracy or other evaluation metrics. It's really on a case-by-case -case basis because, like you said, Wes, it's not always 97%. If I'm in an actual real-world scenario and all we need is 80%, I would get fired if I spent you know, <laughs> six months trying to get anywhere past that, right? So yeah. you definitely have to take it case-by-case. Just to uh, add a little bit to yeah. that too, I think it's also left to us, the community, AI community, to sort of define what a standard is. So there are efforts like MLPuff, where folks from Google, Facebook, Amazon, IBM actually come together to define what a set of metric is, like what is the accuracy, what is the throughput and latency. So I think such efforts actually could help propel a standard benchmarking in ML. Awesome. Well, let's go on to the next one of these. The next one is, if I can't afford to buy a GPU, like me maybe, for deep learning, what does it mean, uh, th does that mean that I can't do any serious neural network training? What do you guys think? <laughs> Peter? So I, I, I started the entire uh, AI without a GPU. I should have just got my entire GPU re recently. There's a lot of resources online, uh, including uh, Intel's AI Academy which gives you the, uh, you know, using CPU Xeon servers that you can train. And also there's a lot of schools that you can leverage their um, GPU servers. But you know, you have to wait a little bit and, you know, on, online that they're generally available, for, uh, the resources available for you to go train. Uh, and for the most part, uh, when you're starting with the AI, I don't even recommend you go training. Uh, you, there's, there's thousands and thousands of pre-trained models that you can actually start practicing. And, and a lot of times those are models are like like some of the models I used right in the beginning, I still have not beaten their benchmark. You know, so so that's the way I see. If you want to get into AI, um, deep learning, just use pre-existing models first, and then once you cross that threshold, you have a really you know you can go through AI Academy, and then one uh, Intel's AI Academy. Once you go through that, you can you can get funding. I mean, if you, you're already an AI expert by then. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And and uh, the new development in FPGA and in the neural network cores, including that core support inside the new CPUs, making it a lot different. You will you will be able to see a lot of neural network applications existing today on your smartphone. Android and iOS already support, the SDK is already in there, and you're actually training on a small set, of course, small data set. You're training on the CPU, you're doing inverse quickly without worrying about the CPU power. So probably $50, $60 Raspberry Pi-like product will help a lot, and there's a lot out there in the market. And Intel Movidius is another good example. Wow. It's a neural computer stick that you can actually get for under $70. And using the resources on the AI Academy, Intel AI Academy, you can actually start with a pre-trained model as you basically mentioned, but you still don't have to go GPU. GPU, unless you already figured out the model size and what you're doing, you're working on a large scale of data. That's when you need GPU. So it's not ready to start with. It's very uh, advanced stage with, with yeah. AI. I'd like to add a point there. So we specialize in uh, distributing uh, distributing machine learning uh, load for training. We, that's what we specialize in. And uh, we're working with Intel uh, team to show, actually we have benchmark data that it's already there, but I'm letting the cat out of the bag here a little bit prematurely. Uh, we're co-writing a paper with Intel that one can do training faster than GPU cheaper than GPU for sure, uh, just with uh, commodity CPU. That's uh, RocketML Intel combination uh, paper is coming out. It's so far, you know, even it, there is uh, inferencing and there is uh, training where you consume a lot of the hardware uh, compute resources. So far, uh, CPUs outperform GPUs in the inferencing. Uh, but that wasn't the case in the uh, uh, training space. But uh, the reason for that was that most of the software people use on top of the hardware is bloated. Uh, for example, Apache Spark, uh, Spark is great software. For some other purpose for training, it's a bloated uh, software. It comes with a lot of uh, uh, baggage that's not required for uh, machine learning training. So we have built a system that can overcome that barrier, and now we are hitting a benchmark below the GPU speeds. Uh, so it's much faster than GPU speed. So that's an interesting uh, thing that we found out. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's exciting to hear about. I'll look forward to, to seeing that paper. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate all of your guys' perspective on that. I think that a lot of people see that as a barrier um, when it doesn't have to be. And uh, I think, you know, I would emphasize as well that, you know, training isn't the only bit of the AI workflow um, in general, right? Even if you you are thinking of training only, there's a lot there's a lot to learn about the fundamentals, about pre-processing, about uh, inference, like you said, Peter. So there's a lot you can learn, and and we'll post some of those resources in the show notes. Okay, so this next one's kind of interesting. Hear you guys' perspective. This question is: Why is there a sudden craze of programmers with little ma math background? jumping onto machine learning, which requires a much different skill set than traditional programming. What do you guys think? I mean, have you seen uh, SDK, SDK tools, SDK tools that we see out today made it a lot easier to consume and build and utilize training models compared to start doing everything on your own using Python, for example. I mean, this why, yeah, I mean, if there is a ready to use 
machine learning model tools that I can go to AWS, for example, and just pull it and immediately start using it and I have prediction ready to go. Yeah, you will see a lot of people without mathematical background trying to get into that, but you, you will face issues, you will fail. You'll need that mathematical background. Okay, so as, as a hacker, you know, I, I, I basically build prototypes a lot. So that's one of the trend is that you follow where the, uh, the, the entrepreneurs generally follow what the trend is. And the latest trend is basically, um, you know, a blockchain and AI. Blockchain is still really difficult to program, but people get into it because there's one or two really good applications. Like Bitcoin is, you know, they see Bitcoin as one of the things that's going to change the world. All the programmers get into study blockchain and they see self-driving car. They start seeing this as being deployed in the real world. They're like, okay, there, this is a time where you have a emerging technology that's being applied in the real world now. And this is a time to, for me to invest my time to, and then to, to, to understand and to execute and to find opportunities within the space. As it happened back in mobile, when mobile start getting to people's hand, all of a sudden, all the programmers start jumping on mobile. Because I jumped in before that. And uh, I, I remember just, just being one of the independent uh, Android developers, I was invited to, you know, to, to give a talk at TED Global. That was you know, really rare because you know, people didn't get into it. But as soon as that, that, that uh, tipping point has been uh, passed through, like we have current applications that being deployed in the real world now, that's when the programmers all want to jump in and this is where opportunity is. That's such a great point because if you think about it, you know, if they started from square one when they found out what was hot on the market right now, like blockchain or AI, they would never catch up. The ideas or, or where they think the application would be would be two years out by the time they caught up in calculus, hmm. right? Uh, and then understanding derivatives or, you know, that's, that's messy. So what they do is, you're right, they go in and advance, they say, hey, I'm just gonna, and, and then I'll backtrack. And then I'll, I'll try to figure out that, that actual knowledge down the road. And to Ali's point, you know, that can be dangerous, absolutely. So I think, it, to the, I would caution those, don't, don't, not innovate and don't not jump into it. Absolutely, because I will say something that will spawn the rest of your minds here much better than anything I could come up with on my own, regardless of what my mathematical history is, right? And I think that's what we need to spawn is innovation, but be careful, I, I totally agree with that. They're, they're following a trend. Yeah, I think um, there, there's definitely a balance to, to be had there. I think, you know, we've had uh, guests previously on the show that don't have a math background, but are still, you know, innovating in a really great way in AI. And so I think that, yeah, I would love to encourage people to, to get in, get in the field, get their hands dirty. Like Peter said, get some pre-trained models, try out some things. This is a new layer in the software stack that people can um, experiment with. But then, you know, once you start getting into it more, you're going to naturally be drawn into these ideas around the, the theory behind neural networks and other things. And, you know, you don't have to have a math, I don't know, do any of you guys have a math PhD or, or something like this? Uh, far, far from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, I definitely, I definitely don't. And so I, I think um, the math is important, like like you guys have said, and people will get into it. But you don't have to feel like if you don't have a math PhD, then you can't can't get into AI and start start innovating. One quick I point agree. I want to make is uh, is also a question you have to ask yourself as a, as a developer: When the software stack do you see yourself? Right, you know, the machine learning software stack is pretty complex and deep. You can look at the analogy of, say, an assembly language developer or a Java developer. Like, where in that stack do you want to be? Do you want to be writing drivers? Do you want to be writing assembly language programming? Because very soon AI is really going to be a box, essentially. You're just going to be talking <laughs> to APIs, right? So, do you want to be writing applications for this box or you want to actually build the box, right? Yeah. So, that's one question the developer has to answer himself. Great point. That is so true. Very good point. <laughs> 
Awesome. So this next one um, is probably somewhat controversial. Uh, I, I, so I talked actually to uh, Wojciech Zaremba yesterday uh, about, about general intelligence. What is your guys' take on how intelligent is AI now? So the question is, how intelligent is AI now? This was in July, but um, you know now now we're a little bit later, so maybe it's more intelligent now. But what do you guys think? Very dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so AI right now, as we because you know, everything is called AI now because of the you know the buzz yeah, uh, like I explained earlier. But it, right now, it's mostly consists of uh, inferencing. That's what I consider deep learning. That's what you know. That's what spawned the entire industry. It becomes a sensor rather than just a, uh, rather than intelligence itself, right? Because uh, a, a computer doesn't know what a cat is before 2012, and the whole point that right now computers are this is a cat and this is a dog. That's what intelligence, and this is all it can do. But you know, with all the other programming of human intelligence that we have combined with you know what's so-called deep learning, artificial intelligence, this is worth the creating. Uh, the real intelligences, and that, that can go into some danger field, right? Like if you think about not just what how it can benefit a human being, but it, what, how what technology can do, uh, it, it gets into very very dark sides of uh, humans as well as you know dark sides of um, machine itself. For example, you know you can easily target people using dropping bombs. That's just a, that's just something. So, so, so as we develop the AI, I think this is a thing we have to consider is that right now it is, everything's dictated by human intelligence. So we have to decide whether we want to like build something that can just drop bomb because they see human. Because at the end of the day, if you train that model, just detecting humans, you have to figure, you have to have, you know, you have to have something to, to back in so you cannot use this to drop bombs. Can I summarize your answer? The answer is yes and no, good and bad, smart and not so smart, right? And, and as an example, if I apply AI in a retail architecture and I wanna do RFID tracking to push advertisement or just to track foot traffic generally in a store or motion tracking for, you know, for uh, my, my AC, I'm saving power, simple things like that, right? AI is super smart, AI is brilliant and I see an ROI immediately. But if you take it to a more complex model, like what you're saying, where it can get really scary, you think about simple things like an, an autonomous vehicle. Everybody talks about autonomous vehicles, but let's say I'm in a car, and let's say I'm in an autonomous vehicle that tracks vitals now because it's self-driving. Maybe it's tracking vitals. Maybe I have a heart attack. Maybe the car needs to pull over. Does the car understand, which we just taught it, what a road is. Does a car even understand the density of the gravel on the side of the road? How far to pull over? How to look over your shoulder and see how much traffic you're gonna cause by pulling over here versus 10 feet ahead? It's that consciousness, and so it requires so much more. And so in that instance, it's not very smart. Not yet. Yeah, yeah. Instead, I would argue that it's not autonomous at all in vehicles, but rather automated, programmed, based on a set of parameters, not autonomous at all. Yeah. And I don't think we're there yet, so. Yeah, there are two ways to think about it. One is, uh, it's very simple statement is, easy is hard, hard is easy. What is hard for humans is easy for machines. Like if you want to uh, ask someone, a, a data scientist or, you know, whatever, take Larry Page also, and say that, hey, what does the recommendation engine look like? He won't be able to answer that question, but whereas machine learning can do that much better than humans. Uh, on the other hand, what's easy for humans, that is, you know, cat is a cat or whatever it is, that's a lot easier for humans, but for machines it's harder, but it's getting better and better. Andrew Ng, uh, one of the key guys in the AI segment, uh, we almost worship him, he says that anything, uh, I can't remember, I think you said one second, 
for humans to do an inferencing. This is a badge or whatever. This is a human being or this is a mic. If it takes one second, machine can do it at the moment. But I think that that uh, threshold is increasing very rapidly. Uh, we increase the compute capacity, data quality, and of course, uh, there is algorithms, the math uh, behind it as people invent more new math uh, ways of representing the real world. It's all getting faster rapidly at an exponential rate. And uh, I think uh, there is some threat because of that. And also, at the same time, uh, you could solve uh, significant problems, uh, for example, in cardiology or in radiology, uh, medical spaces, you can literally make a huge difference to the human beings. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for your perspective on that. So this one probably uh, built on that one. And maybe this is a point of confusion for a lot of people. So the question is, is a neural network actually a good model of how the brain works? So I, we, I mean, uh, if you look at a, a perceptron as an example, I mean, the way your brain actually gets signal from sensor in your, in your fingers and the way you react to it, just building that same model in a neural network, it, it may look easy and it may work for a lot of application. As, as we said, we can actually have machine learning as models, but putting these models together, the sensors together to actually make an intelligence decision based on all these, I don't think this is how the brain works. I mean, the, 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 way, the, 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 the way you may sometimes think about a, a, like a smell or, a, or a, you hear a music, it reminds you of something you, did not, you don't actually how that worked. You don't have any idea how it worked. With the machine, the consciousness is not there. You don't expect it to, to be able to do that or come up with new ideas and so on. It's, it's hard. I will just to add on that, uh, I think there is a symbiotic relationship between neuroscience and uh, neural machine, neural network, uh, people who are trying to hack, biohack, you know, what they think, the, the way the brain works into machines. I've heard uh, neuroscientists say that, uh, you know, by reading the papers of uh, mathematicians writing and about neural network, they learn a lot about the brain. So there's still a large area to how the brain works we, we don't understand, uh, even though neural, neuroscience uh, uh, is in, improving quite a bit. So this is an interesting, uh, definitely a, a very intriguing uh, area to keep an eye on. So I just want to add something that's just like, I think the neural network is just one part of the brain, right? We, as a part of the brain, we have a lot of things. We have memory, which computer have, you know, built a hard drive that's specifically just simulating our memory. And neural network is basically just classification object detection. And that is part of that. And as, as we do more computer science and, and more uh, AI um, in the future, we're going to uncover different parts of the brain that's, you know, some of them is going to re react to smell that currently where it is hardwired, but is, that, is, is human hardwired? Or is that learned? Uh, these are things that we're going to come, like, is going to be very interesting in the next few years. So kind of building on what we were talking about, about what, it, what a neural network is, I'll jump into this next question. The, the question is, in a neural network, each neuron is a hidden layer. In a hidden layer is said to focus on a certain feature. Take an eye for an example. But how does it deduce that an eye is an eye? Or since it can contain a combination of things like an eyebrow and you know uh, other parts of the face and the pupil and all of those things. So any one of you guys want to take a stab at, at describing that? I think it depends on the, uh, how much data we provide the machines. Uh, you know, if, uh, in, with enough data, a uh, machine is able to parse out 
those similarities. Everything that machine does is, is just trying to match a pattern. And every layer helps match one little pattern at a time. So that's how the, the uh, neural nets, uh, deep neural net, keep adding uh, layers and layers. And each layer has a quite interesting set of information that you can make use of uh, for some other purpose too. Yeah, so may, maybe a follow-up on that. I mean, there's a lot of talk about deep neural networks now. Is, is the purpose of all of these hidden layers in the deep neural networks to to detect these more complex patterns? Or, or why, why have the, the deep neural networks kind of uh, advanced so far? It's basically like in, in your brain, the way your brain have a receptor field. Like when, when you think about the way your brain reacts to caffeine, for example, or to nicotine, I mean, it, it binds with certain perceptron and neurons in your brain to actually feel that. And now the same thing, I mean, with these layers, you got a lot of filtering. You got a lot of control that happening in there. And part of that is basically having multiple receptor fields. So you're actually going faster because if the receptor field doesn't match, you're skipping. You're actually not going in that neural network, completely going through it. And remember, you're doing that thousands and thousands and thousands of times during the training level. So basically, adding the receptor fields in there, it changed the way we, we, we see it. It changed the way we control it. But it's still, it's the, the way neural network will work is going to go more about distribution than just as a single node network that work together. You're going to have multiple nodes making decisions together. That's just what makes sense, basically. I mean, distributing the decision making instead of deciding on one type of uh, neurons, for example, with certain sigmoid control, you're going to have multiple based on the decision of the first one which one to trigger, which one to attack. That's how the eye work actually. There is multiple layers of filtration that happen and sensitivity that change with the lights around you. We're far away from that, but cameras will have these technologies slowly. As we understand more, we'll build more into the neural network. You know, there's that constant debate if machine learning is actually science or arts. You know, so I think it's really hard for a data scientist or a non-machine learning expert to kind of figure out what layer should I put where, how many neurons should a single layer have, right? But I think efforts like AutoML are actually trying to solve that problem so you can install AutoML or such too and you're ready to go. But time will tell, really see how far we, you know, we get close to getting accurate models based on such tools. Yeah, and uh, just describe AutoML a little bit because people might not be familiar. Uh, I think uh, Wes was going to say something about oh. it. I was actually yeah. just going to say these questions are so presumptuous, right? They're Again, they're human questions about a non-human platform, and they're presumptuous, <laughs> right? Peter, right? You, you mentioned about, you know, how neurons or Ali perceptrons and how those impact the whole model, right? And, and, and now we're only focusing on maybe two elements of our brain, storage, right? And, and potentially some reasoning, right? Yeah, some decision-making. But the fact is, maybe AI will evolve even past that to where it will define that maybe our brain isn't connected the way it's most optimal in a compute environment. And so the questions are presumptuous. So when you answer some of these questions, we have to answer based on unknowns. It's the easiest analogy I like to use is when you say, oh, that planet can't support life. Who are you to define what life is and what another life form requires to exist? 
right? How would you even perceive to know that, right? And so some of these questions, they have to be open-ended and you have to keep your mind open to what is a much larger picture than what we can even think can exist. I'm glad that we've covered the full gamut between uh, neural networks and aliens. So I'm <laughs> happy that we made it there. I did that for you. I, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, just uh, briefly before we go on, I'll I'll, let, I'll circle back to Dave and uh, let him mention what AutoML is, so so people can can. Uh... Yeah, so typically when you train a machine learning model, you're tuning a bunch of parameters like uh, or hyperparameters uh, like you know batch size, learning rate, iteration, and whatnot. So Auto AutoML lets you sort of tune those knobs there and there, and then gives you like like a, t a way to accelerate the process essentially. Um, the other tools to like AutoML, but that's one of my favorite. Awesome. Yeah. Just to add on that, uh, you know, um, great models are built through iterations. Iterations are very tedious and um, uh, taxing uh, for, for a data scientist to do it. AutoML reduces that um, extra effort uh, quite a bit. It's a machine learning on machine learning. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. And we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes, of course, to, to some of those resources. So the next question, if deep learning is the future, which maybe everyone says it is, what is the need for machine learning methods like SVM, decision trees, Bayesian methods, Markov chains, et cetera? I mean, each accelerate in, in, a, each accelerate in a different field. I mean, yeah. deep learning, deep learning will, will not work for a lot of mathematical equations that we deal with in the network field today because the data type, the way it behaves, it, it changed with a lot of factors that is not fitted in a table. I cannot just fit it in a table and have parameters define it. So there is a lot of, a lot of fields in AI where deep learning may be good to actually predict a, a, a model based on tree size, information that you can fit easily in tables. And also like pictures, if you look at pictures, it will take in pictures and actually turning that into a model that's basically looking at the pixels inside. It's the same idea. So yeah, the other machine learning models still exist and it, it actually a lot faster in performance and in behavior, especially supervised behavior when you, when you control that. It, deep learning doesn't have all of that built into it, but again, it accelerates into pattern recognition a lot, a lot faster. Yeah, not everything is a nail. You need a hammer for a nail, but if you have a screw, you need a screwdriver. All methods have value and uh, a good fit in different areas. Deep learning is quite turns out to be quite versatile, but it has its own weaknesses too. Yeah, on that note, um, for people kind of getting into the field, they, they probably hear a lot about deep learning, but there are so many methods to, to learn about. What would you guys recommend as far as um, a person getting into the field? What sorts of things might they want to learn about before deep learning? And, and how quickly should they kind of make that leap to, to learning about, uh, about these deep neural networks? I mean, you start with machine learning basics before you go to deep learning. What is machine learning? What are you trying to achieve? And you understand basically how you're taking parameters, what training mean. You actually get familiar with the framework. So there, there's a lot of frameworks you will get introduced to. Each of them got a, a powerful side that you can use in certain systems. Get before all of this, in my opinion, distributed systems. You need to be able to, you know, run around know your way around as a distributed system engineer because AI need a lot of that. You're going to have models sitting in the cloud. You're going to have inverse happening on the edge. You're going to have training maybe happening on the edge in some cases. So 
So to get into this, I, I would recommend somebody just first, just this is how I got into it. Just basically first figure out what is a cat and what is a dog. Um, I'm sure all of us have went through that. <laughs> now, once you go through that, you know, cause it's the goal that's pushing you to keep learning, right? First, first it's like, okay, how do I determine an elephant from dog and cat? And from there I was like, okay, I need photos of elephant. So I have to basically Google a bunch of photos of elephant. I was like, okay, from there, I, I basically said, okay, what framework to use? And I actually select a framework. I, I select a couple of them. I'm not gonna say which one. I basically choose the easiest route that I was able to train my model. And this is, but this is a, it's a limitation of a person's imagination is what will, 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 will keep their curiosity going. Will keep them Googling for like, you know, a stack overflow for, for information. And when they get stuck and then you know, each step you, you learn a little more and eventually pretty much how your own way would work. That's a good way for learning, uh, getting into deep learning. That's a very good advice. I agree with him that, uh, you know, it's a complex topic is math involved. There is uh, a domain knowledge involved and there is ability to define a good problem uh, is very critical too. And then you have the tools like TensorFlow one day, PyTorch the other day. There is so much. I would agree with Peter uh, in saying that uh, just get in there, start with a simple problem. You, can, you don't have to worry about defining a problem when you're trying to make the machine identify cat versus dog. So you kind of minimize the buttons you have to push and start small. And as you g gain confidence and curiosity kicks in and your goals change and you learn new methods, new complicated uh, approaches, that's the that's best way to do it. The other quick thing I want to add is it also depends on how deep you want to go. So if you're in the academia, then you probably want to do statistics and probability. Or if you're not, if you're in the industry, you probably want to build prototypes as fast as possible. Then you want to use frameworks like TensorFlow, Keras especially is one of my favorites. It's very easy to go, four lines of code, you have your model trained, and then it's, it's doing inferencing. So it really depends on the user, the developer, where you see yourself being in that machine learning stack. Awesome, yeah. One of the things that we've, we've emphasized before is um, kind of in line with what you guys are saying. Find a, find a problem that you're passionate about. Find some data that you're interested in and just try to start answering those questions and that will lead you to the to the right frameworks and the right methods and the right things to learn about. It's a great point. Like just start where you want to start, find interest in it because if you're trying to do static tasks A, B, and C to get to the end result, I, I think you're following a set of steps. I think you have to have a passion about what, what, what it is. What do you want to solve for? What do you want to do? And then the excitement and the motivation behind that pushes you further. But I think, yeah, as soon as, if you're just trying to give someone a guideline, do this, do that, do this, do that, that's boring. That sends me back to school when you just had to get your homework done. That's not fun, right? But I think everybody at this table is super excited about what we do and we follow our own paths. That's why we're all doing different things, right? So. Awesome. So I don't know if all of you guys primarily work in Python. I think we could extend this next question to whatever language you guys work in. But apparently the internet wants to know what is the coolest thing that you've done with Python slash whatever language you're, you're interested in. So maybe if you guys just want to highlight one of the cool things that you've done to give give a little bit of inspiration to the uh, audience. So my kind of projects, just going back again to what excites me, it's FPGA, so field, programmable, get erased. So FPGAs are pretty low level and they don't really operate at the level of Python. But as you know, the frameworks operate at the level of Python. So what I typically would do is create wrappers around the FPGA low level APIs, right? So I would work with C, C++ and then create wrappers for Python so you can easily plug in the, the device to such frameworks. 
Awesome. Are, are any of those kind of wrappers and that tooling, is that available to the public? Uh, typically, no, uh, okay. because those are very low-level driver API SDL. stuff. Right, exactly. I don't even think the users would be interested in knowing what goes on at that level, right? So yeah. Python is the way to go, I would say. Awesome, yeah. And if is any of that stuff that you've done uh, public to where people could t- could take a look? or Currently, not public. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. It, uh, where I, I know that Intel, for example, is putting out a lot around FPGAs. Right. Are there resources out there or, or webinars or so, anything? So, yes, Intel has done quite a lot in terms of enabling FPGAs for data scientists and machine learning. Uh, there's actually a tool called uh, CBSDK. It was recently released uh, not too long ago. So, CBSDK would allow you to take your trained model and run it through what is called a model optimizer. It's actually a Python script. And then from that, you would get uh, an intermediate representative, which you can then use to port against pretty much any hardware that Intel makes today, um, you know, Movideos, FPGAs, CPUs. So OpenVINO used to be OpenVINO. Is it OpenCBSDK? Open it's the same thing. <laughs> it's integrated together. Right, right. So CBSDK is what it's mostly called today. That's that's the tool that you can use if you're using Intel's uh, hardware. It's pretty easy to use. It's Python-based. and. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I definitely want to dive yeah. in more myself on that. Yeah, and the, and the most exciting thing, I mean, uh, FVGA is a, is a very exciting thing for me right now. But I, I believe Python control of SDR and FPGA together, that's what's going to change the way we push AI to the edge. Because imagine, I mean, you don't have the limit of a, a certain technology that already sit on this device. Just because the technology changed in a few weeks or we found a, a silicon level issue with the design itself. Since FPGA, it's easy to rearrange. It's just a firmware that you can actually push make it easier and make it a lot easier to control. SDR also, pushing SDR, which is software-defined radio, basically. That going to make 5G technology, LTE technology, and IoT technologies without being stuck in a limit. And imagine if you actually let the machine decide the control of the waves and the control of which which band to actually use to make sure like a swarm of drones, for example, stay always connected. So AI gonna get pushed to that. And I, I believe FPGA, I mean, as an industry, uh, we, we've been in the network industry for a while. It started with FPGA, especially on the on the network side, because it's easier than building a complete ASIC. Right. Go to the market, but with FPGA pricing going extremely down in the last five six years, until introduction of a, a new type of FPGAs that actually built for intermediate devices. It's not just basic input and output features. You have more cores from the technology that's available to you. I believe, for me, seeing Python being able to actually utilize to control SDR and FPGA, and we did some research on that on the edge of the network. It's extremely amazing. It can push AI capabilities a lot more to the edge and and use more sensors capabilities utilizing that FPGA and sensor fusion. You don't need a lot of sensors. You can use less channels by fusing your data together and having like, we, we refer to it as a the edge of the network, which is, we refer to it as MAC today, multi-access edge compute. But we also believe there's another layer. So it's not everything gonna be in the cloud. It's in the edge, but also furthermore, on the device itself. There will be some decision-making happening there to eliminate the amount of bandwidth we use. Otherwise, these all-connected devices will send so much data, no matter what technology we have, it's not gonna be enough to process it. Awesome. Well, any other any other thoughts around interesting things you've done with Python or, or other languages that you wanna highlight? Uh, we, we work 
at the infrastructure level, just uh, bare metal up silicon up level. So we kind of uh, try to be hardware agnostic, be it uh, CPUs or FPGAs, whatever it is. So we work at C++ level, uh, not so much uh, on the Python. Sure. <laughs> yeah, well, what have you been doing recently in the, at the C++ layer? And, and also maybe I'd love to hear you speak towards the, uh, the role of C and C++ in ML and AI. A lot of people see Python as kind of the, the only player, but I think that's that's kind of a, a facade in, in some ways. So maybe you could speak to that. At the infrastructure level, you need uh, compiler language like C++. Uh, and then at the user level, we put a wrapper and allow people to use uh, our product uh, with, with Python uh, interface. The Jupyter Notebook, they can call our libraries and uh, make use of it. So uh, all languages have value there, but I think a lot of the models will get built in Python only. Uh, that's that's the fact. But when it comes to distributing to consume compute, you need something else underneath. Gotcha. So kind of on that on that note, you know, maybe the last thing that, that we can end with is uh, there's a lot of people kind of getting into uh, like you said, training with with Python, and maybe they're they're hitting some blockers as they're they're trying to scale things, or they're trying to build up an AI team, and maybe not not knowing how to productionize models and that sort of thing. What general recommendations would you guys have around kind of the team that you build up around the, that you're trying to put together to build AI models, and kind of some of the the tooling that that you might need to consider, the methodologies that you might need to consider as you're actually trying to scale AI. I would add by saying it depends on if you want to be a machine learning developer or an infrastructure engineer, right? Or you want to be both, which is great, because I'm sort of somewhere in between. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Tools that I would recommend are Dockers, maybe Kubernetes, to then manage Docker containers that are running these ML models across multiple nodes. But again, like I said, it really depends on what you want, what you really yeah, want to do. And <laughs> on that note, do you think like as far as teams that people are trying to build up, maybe you're trying to start an AI effort in your in your company? Do you need to kind of have have both of these components, or do you think there's people out there that can f- fulfill both of the roles themselves? Or right. So it turns out they're actually really nice DevOps tools you could use. I would say maybe just a a team of one person should be able to manage the infrastructure that runs these ML models. And really, you can deploy Docker containers and Kubernetes, um, Mesos, for example, to kind of manage these models. It's a different thing if you're running it at scale, then you may need a large engineering team to kind of make sure that business is running up and up and going, yeah. The most time-consuming part about building an AI, great AI product, uh, isn't necessarily the deployment piece. It's thinking right about the domain, about the problem you're trying to solve. Especially if the team is being built in a bigger company, the problem definition itself requires a lot of multiple levels of uh, agreements and consensus. Uh, That is a challenging uh, thing. So you need people who can build consensus, you need people who can do critical thinking, and then you need great data scientists who can translate those uh, problem statements into some kind of a model. Okay, uh, it's a classification problem or a clustering problem, whatever. Somebody who is familiar with that kind of uh, uh, semantics be able to translate that and hack together an experiment, put out a prototype. You should be able to get to a prototype really fast. Uh, that should be the goal. And uh, that requires a multidisciplinary team. 
I think that's a good point. I, I like to say you need you need translators. You need people because the folks that are doing the dirty work and getting their hands dirty and the programmers and developers, those aren't the people with the cash a lot of times. And those aren't the people making the business decisions. And so you kind of need someone in between that's that's savvy enough to get the idea, be able to communicate with those that are really putting the rubbers on the road, but also communicate what the why is, right, Vinay? Right. What the end result is going to be, and, and even bigger, what's what, what's the ROI? What's the return on what? what how many sales am I going to get. I mean, you, you almost have to dumb it down and it's yeah. almost insulting. That's why, you know, you hear the, the joking tagline, don't let the engineer make the product, right? Because you'll keep fixing it. You'll keep getting better and better. And that doesn't scale for enterprises or for a product to go to market, mm-hmm. right? And so while we constantly want to do better things and we can never deliver something because it's never done, it will always be better. You got, I think you got to have that buffer, someone in the middle that can translate from the tech to the business side, because if you don't have that, there's a huge gap between the business guy and the people that like, like folks that say, like you guys are actually doing it, right? Awesome. Well, just to kind of end things here, um, I want to thank you guys for for taking time out of the conference. I know there's a lot of great talks going on, so thank you guys for taking time to talk. It was really some great perspective, and and thank you to uh, Intel AI for for helping arrange uh, arrange this panel. I'm really appreciated, and uh, thank you guys so much. Thanks. For thank us. you, Daniel. Thanks, thank you for having us. All right, thank you for tuning into this episode of Practically AI. If you enjoyed this show, do us a favor, go on iTunes, give us a rating, go in your podcast app and favorite it. If you are on Twitter or a social network, share a link with a friend, whatever you got to do, share the show with a friend if you enjoyed it. And bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. And we catch our errors before our users do here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Check them out. Support this show. This episode is hosted by Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson. Editing is done by Tim Smith. The music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelaw.com. When you go there, pop in your email address, get our weekly email, keeping you up to date with the news and podcasts for developers in your inbox every single week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.